0: We are uh, in a section where Jesus is getting criticized a lot. <laughs> he was criticized in Mark 2 verses 1 through 12 for doing what? Was yeah, for forgiving sins, something they said only God was able to do. They were right about that, but wrong about who Jesus was. And uh, Jesus dealt with that very capably. He proved his ability to forgive sins by doing what? Healing the man who was paralyzed. Doing what they could see to prove his ability to do what they could not see. And then in 13 to 17, Jesus was criticized for what? Feeding with tax collectors and
1: sinners.
0: Yes, and Jesus answered that criticism by basically saying what? They're
2: the ones that need me.
0: Yes, just like a doctor sees sick people, so I came for sinners. That's why I would associate with them good answer and then in 18 to 22 they criticized Jesus for what? fasting yes for not fasting like the uh, disciples of John and the Pharisees fasted and Jesus dealt with that in in three little stories for one thing uh, you don't fast at a wedding because it's a time of joy a time of feasting come in and uh, for another thing Um, Jesus uh, did not come to just patch up the old traditions and the old forms. Jesus did not come to just pour himself into the old molds of their traditions. Jesus came with a whole new gospel, a whole new teaching that that will not fit in with their old fasting uh, traditions and so forth. So, Jesus has so far dealt with criticisms very ably, and we've got a couple more before we leave this kind of uh, thing. I think one of the things that you see in this is that when Jesus was criticized, he doesn't just manage to say something to get out of it. He actually says profound, really helpful things. He he actually gains ground... (laughs) when he's attacked, because he teaches things that are just very powerful and very helpful to us. Uh, That's one of your girls, I think. Um, All right, any questions or comments uh, before we get into
1: 223?
0: All right, would somebody read then 23 to 28?
1: Through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking he heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and Phoenix and became hungry? How he entered the house of God and in the time of Abiathah, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. But Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath the Son of Man. Lord,
2: even at
0: the Sabbath. Okay. Um, what were the disciples doing?
2: Walking through the field and picking off the heads of the grain and eating them. Was it their fields
0: they were doing that in?
2: Probably not. Since they were fishing
0: them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, were they stealing that grain? They were allowed to do that. Not according to the law. Yeah, that's the first thing we'd think about that. You know, you couldn't just go into somebody's field and grab something you wanted to eat without paying for it. But that was specifically a provision in Deuteronomy 23. This is a pretty cool thing in the law. There's a lot of, you know, neat laws that you had in the Old Testament to deal with various situations and in Deuteronomy 23 24 when you enter your neighbor's vineyard then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied but you shall not put any in your basket when you enter your neighbor's standing grain then you may pluck the heads with your hand but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. In other words you can go into anybody's field, and you can get and eat what you eat right then. What you're hungry for right then, but you can't take it with you. You can't harvest it. It, it really, it was their alternative to having to have McDonald's all along the way. And, uh, you know, I think it was a pretty practical thing. I mean, you know, if we had more fields today, and if you could just do that, you could avoid the need for fast food. And the farmer's not going to really miss, you know, just enough for you to get full on, as long as you don't put it in your basket and, you know, carry it off with you and, you know, have food for the next, you know, month. So so there's no question about their stealing. Nobody thinks they're stealing. That's not the issue here. But there was an issue here. What was the issue? This was a Sabbath day. Now, a Sabbath day just gets to be a real big thing in... uh, in the Gospels in Mark um, what, what is the Sabbath day? What did the Bible say about the Sabbath day? Rest on the
1: Sabbath
0: Yes Now, what? do you remember what day the Sabbath day was? Seventh day Seventh day which for us then would be which day? <laughs> Saturday because really the first day is Sunday So on Saturdays they were to rest uh, do you remember the exact words of that tenth, tenth commandment? What were they supposed to do? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And he goes on to say they're not supposed to work, you know, not supposed to go to their jobs and things like that. Well, that's what the law said. The law law did not have a lot of details. It just gave basically that rule about the Sabbath day. Well, the Jews in the interim had supplied the lack of details. One of the things that the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day were gifted at doing was coming up with a lot of rules to define exactly what God meant, say, when he said not to work on the Sabbath day. Now, there is a book, I haven't looked at it in many years, there's a book uh, from about two or 300 years after this time that actually collects together all the traditional rules of the Jews. It's called the Mishnah. It is fascinating. It is a book the size of a large dictionary. The one I saw, maybe it comes in different editions, but the one I saw in a very, very fine print in several columns and as I recall, there was about a hundred pages of rules on the Sabbath. And I read some of them. I didn't read all that. But as, as you read them, it was just amazing, you know, what, what some of the rules were. And uh, how they were. Um, because, like, here's one of the rules. They forbade women to look in the mirror on the Sabbath day. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't think that would be work, would you? Well, you know why they forbade him to look in the mirror on the Sabbath day?
1: Because they might see a gray hair and pluck it out.
0: Yes, <laughs> and if they plucked out a gray hair on the Sabbath day, you see that would be work. <laughs> Maybe if you're a petition. They, uh, but but they had their their ways around their rules too. It was very impressive all of the uh, you know ways they did things. Um, for example. They said that you could, you could walk about three-fifths of a mile on the Sabbath. Three-fifths of a mile away from your home. However, if you had something you owned in a house three-fifths of a mile from your house, then you could walk to that house, and since something you own is in that house, then you could consider that your home away from home, and you could walk another three (laughs) of a mile. And theoretically, you could do that an infinite number of times. So they had their ways around it. They they said that you could uh, not carry a couch on the Sabbath day (laughs) unless the couch had a man on it. Now, if the couch had somebody on it, then you could carry the couch because the couch was incidental. It was really the man that you would carry. <laughs> and so forth and so on. It just goes on and on. There were zillions of rules. It was just amazing. And so, by Pharisaic definition, the disciples were uh, harvesting and cultivating. And so forth and so on. They 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 would have violated several of these traditions. Now, obviously, you don't find anything about that in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is saying not to work. They're not saying not to pick an ear of grain and eat it on the Sabbath day. You know that that was not work. You know, by the definition that we see in the Old Testament, it's work by the rules they've added. So that's the situation. Jesus and the disciples were actually violating the Pharisees' traditions, not actually the law as far as this. But the Jews were very fanatical about the Sabbath. There were two things that practically defined Judaism in Jesus' day. The Sabbath and circumcision. Those two things were extremely big identifying marks of what it meant to be a Jew. So you don't keep their rule about the Sabbath, that's uh, a very great affront to their religious sensibilities. And Jesus did. So the Pharisees say to him, Look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? They're very upset about that. And as usual, Jesus says some very profound and helpful things in answering However, these profound and helpful things are not always understood easily on the surface. So let's look at them. What's the first thing Jesus talked about in answering their accusation? Have you never read what Jesus, uh, what David
1: did when he needed hunger, hungry and was with
0: him? Yes. He said, what about what David did when he was hungry? Do you remember that story? What did David and his men eat?
1: Showbread.
0: They ate the showbread. Now, that showbread, what was wrong with eating the showbread?
1: It was food. Only
0: the priests were supposed to eat the showbread. Now, do you remember that whole story about David? What motivated him to want to eat the showbread? He was hungry, he but
1: was
0: he yeah. was running from Saul. He was actually Saul's son-in-law, but Saul, you remember, uh, developed sort of a distaste for David. <laughs> you remember why? The song that people say? Yes. If they
1: David and Saul's
0: thousand and David is ten thousand? Yes, exactly. So Saul was jealous of David and started hating him. And you remember that Saul did a variety of things to try to do David in, like... A certain planet object. Has yeah, throwing a javelin or a spear at him and uh, trying to get other people to kill him and ordering him killed and so forth and so on. And uh, during that time pause momentarily. Uh, During that time, um, it was after God had secretly anointed David to be the next king. You remember that, right? Who was it that actually God used to anoint David? Samuel. So, So Saul didn't know it, but the truth is, God has guaranteed David will be the next king. So it looks to us, when you're reading the narrative about Saul, I mean, over and over again, he comes this close to killing David. And it makes it look like, man, David's life is just hanging by a thread. But the truth is, David's not going to die. David's not going to die because he's going to be the next king. God has already said so. But David went through a period where I think he began to doubt God's promise. I mean, man, he was chased all over the place. And he panicked a little. There's a whole story about Jonathan finding out that Saul was still out to get him and warning David. So David fled to the city called Nob, where the priests were, where the tabernacle was. And when he got there, you remember, the priests want to know why he was there. Remember what he told them?
1: I'm on a very secret mission.
0: Yes, for... So, for Saul. Yes, Saul sent me on this top secret mission. Uh, what What do you call that?
2: A line.
0: Yeah, that was not the truth. And then David says, uh, "You know, we're hungry. You got anything to eat here?" And they said, "Well, we got the, the consecrated bread, but it's only for the priests. Uh, but if you know, if you've all kept yourself un- from being unclean, you know, you can have it." And David said, "Oh, that's great." And so they eat that. And then you remember what else David got from the priest that day? Sword of Goliath. Goliath's sword. Now why did he want Goliath's sword? He didn't
1: have a weapon. Yeah. He
0: didn't now, trust
1: God.
0: Yeah, that's exactly, I mean, you know, God's supposed to be his, you know, defense. But, uh, you know, he sort of is trying to defend himself. And uh, when they tell him they've got Goliath's sword, David said, oh good, there's none like it. There was something kind of short-sighted about that in David, I think. Because, uh, you know, when I think about Goliath's sword... Who was the last person that used it? Yeah, had it done Goliath very much good?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Remember, what, 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 how did the Goliath's sword, uh, you know, have contact with Goliath? Serve him well. <laughs> yeah, David used Goliath's own sword to, to cut his head off. So I mean, you know, if God wants you to die, having Goliath's sword is probably may just be the instrument God chooses to cause you to die. Um, and then David does a really, well, kind of a boner, I think, uh, because from there, remember where he went to try to, you know, kind of get away from Saul. To Goliath's
1: hometown.
0: Yes, to Gath, where Goliath had been from before he died. at David's head. And uh, they find out who he is. They figure, I don't know if he thought they wouldn't recognize him. I don't know what they thought. He thought Saul wouldn't find him there. That was true. But the Philistines found him there. And they bring him before their king, the Achish. And they say, this is the man who killed Goliath. And all that he's been killing Philistines. And you remember what David had to do to get out of that one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he had to act crazy. He swallows into his beard and starts scribbling on the wall and acting crazy. And Akish says, Oh, I got plenty of crazy people around here. I don't need another one. And he sent him away. So David managed to escape. Well, this is the incident that Jesus mentions here. Now, there's some interesting parallels between Jesus and David here. Do you see some parallels?
1: He and his companions are hungry.
0: Yes. You've got David and his companions. You've got Jesus and his companions. And they're both hungry. And they're both eating. Now, there is a difference between David and Jesus. Also, that's significant to why Jesus is mentioning this. What's the difference between how David satisfied his hunger and how Jesus satisfied his hunger?
2: Lawfully.
0: Yeah, David did it wrong. He ate the special bread he wasn't supposed to eat. Jesus does it fine. He's eating the food that the law has permitted him to eat. He's violating the traditions, but he's not violating the law. Now, how would the Jews have looked at David? It's
1: the king, the oh. anointed one, the great
0: hero. Yeah, he's like their George Washington. You know, he could do no wrong. He was, he was great. They, he was a hero to the Jews. How did they look at Jesus?
1: He gave you no
0: right. Yeah. They accuse him of everything, like right here, even though it's not wrong. I think Jesus is pointing out their inconsistency. Think about David. You think he was okay when he and his companions ate what was not lawful for him to eat. And then they turn around and crit- criticize and condemn Jesus and his disciples for eating in a way that was lawful for them to eat. Now, do you have comments and questions on this, to this point, through verse 26?
1: By using this example, Jesus is not approving what David did, is he?
0: I don't think he is. Now, that is a question that has to be raised about this. But I don't think he is. Perhaps for few reasons so I'm glad you asked that question and gave me the chance to give you my reasons um,
1: no problem
0: in 26 Jesus said which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests so Jesus specifically says it wasn't lawful David wasn't a priest so it wasn't lawful Leviticus 24 Leviticus 24:9 9 is the passage that makes it unlawful and it's pretty hard to see Leviticus 24.9 as anything other than, It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. That seems pretty clear. It wasn't for anybody else. Also, in the context of 1 Samuel 21, it's clear David is not doing right in that whole thing. Um, there's more I could say about that later uh, in sort of a consequence sort of the snowball effect of all this saul ends up killing all the priests except one and david will say i brought about the death of all the lord's priests now it wasn't just eating the showbread i think but the whole incident the lying the showbread the sword etc he didn't do the right thing he didn't trust in god also it wouldn't make much sense in the context for Jesus to be using David, like to say, well, well, David was okay in this when he broke the law because Jesus and the disciples were not breaking the law. But, but there's one other point that I want to make that I think is strong, and I don't hear people making this very often, but I, I think this is really helpful to think about in the overall question of was Jesus trying to say this was okay? Did Jesus believe that it was okay To set aside God's laws if you got really hungry. He (laughs)
1: did When? When Satan was
0: him. Yes! How hungry was he then?
1: Mm -hmm. Forty Forty days days hungry.
0: I doubt that he and his disciples were that hungry here. And when he was starving to death, he says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's clear to me that Jesus does not believe you can set aside God's word when you get really hungry. They're even less hungry. I don't think Jesus is trying to argue you can set aside the law. David and his companions, I imagine they were hungry, but no indication they'd gone 40 days and 40 nights without eating. So, I think when you look at the whole picture, what Jesus is really doing is saying, hmm, you're kind of funny, guys. Look at what you do with David. He did what wasn't lawful. And then you turn around and criticize me. He just says, he makes him think about it. He doesn't really draw it out. He just says, have you heard about David? Think about that one. You know, and, uh, you know, if they're willing to, ju- if, the dis- if the Pharisees would justify somebody who does something that's wrong... They're really inconsistent when they condemn Jesus for doing something that's okay. Other thoughts and comments on that question? That's a a debated passage. In 27, good statement. The Sabbath was not made for man. Wait a minute. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. I want you to think about that one. That one is really helpful to us if we understand what he's saying by it. But, you know, Jesus has a habit of saying something in few words that takes a lot of thinking to understand. I want you to go back to the Sabbath law. The Sabbath law basically said you're supposed to do what on the Sabbath? Why would they need to rest? They'd been working they'd been working hard all week and they needed rest. Why had they been working hard all week?
1: God said work diligently. Because of sin?
0: Why would you say because of sin?
1: Because when Adam sinned then the weeds and everything came and you had to the ground was cursed what? because of the
0: hard work is one of the punishments for sin. Now, Adam had a job, even before he sinned. He was to cultivate and keep the garden, but he didn't have the thorns and the thistles and the bugs and whatever to have to deal with. It was not earning his bread by the sweat of his brow. After the sin, one of the consequences was, it was going to be hard work. Now, one of the consequences was for the woman, she's going to have painful childbirth and so forth. There were a lot of punishments, consequences for those sins. The Sabbath was a one day a week rest, reprieve from that punishment for sin. You should not see the Sabbath as a burden. Most of us wouldn't consider rest a burden, would we? Do you like to rest, or do you get annoyed by it? If you've been working hard, rest is kind of nice. So it was actually a blessing. God gave the Sabbath to give man a day a week release from the penalty of sin. He didn't make man for the Sabbath, you know, as if man was a slave to, you know, uh, a whole batch of, of Sabbath rules and regulations the Pharisees have invented. He made the Sabbath for man to be a blessing to man. They've twisted it all around. They've made man as a slave to the Sabbath instead of the Sabbath as a gracious blessing God gave to man. Comments and thoughts about that?
2: Cool. Look at who was made first. God made man and then made the Sabbath for the man to rest. He didn't make the Sabbath and say, let me make some
0: people that can observe it. Yes. (laughs) Good point. Yes, indeed. powerful thing he says though is in verse 28 which is also very profound and connects with verse 27 so the son of man is lord even of the sabbath there's about three things we need to think about in that first of all son of man I don't believe we read about son of man before this what's son of man?
2: Christ often used that name to refer to himself as son of man to show that he was from, he was in the flesh. Almost to show that he was a human like they were. But the way he adds the Lord at the end here, he's saying, I, he, I am flesh as you are, but also I'm above you as I am Lord.
0: Okay, yes. Son of Man is a term Jesus used about 70 times in the Gospels. 70 different passages where you'll see Son of Man used by Jesus to describe himself. Almost never used by anybody else to describe Jesus. You almost don't see Son of Man in Acts through Revelation. It's always in Matthew through John. Jesus used it himself. And I think the reason he calls himself Son of Man, um, well let me say this. Uh, do you know anyone else who's a Son of Man? You. Yes, Ezekiel in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, pretty much every male of the species is a Son of Man. You know, and the others are daughters of men. Um, so when on one sense, to call him son of man seems a little like, well, yeah, right. Except think about it. That's the special thing about Jesus. For us to be sons of men, that's pretty normal. But when Jesus became a son of man, that was what was really special. He'd been son of God. You know, he'd been deity. Uh, When he became a son of man, that was special for him to be a son of man. Not especially special for us. So that's drawing attention to the special thing that happened to him. Um, So, he's talking about himself. You know, it'd be like saying, I, the son of man, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, let me tell you part of what that would mean in my judgment. Who gave the Sabbath law? God, and Jesus was a part of God. So if Jesus is the one who gave the law, who ought to know what breaks it or not? Yeah. I mean, that goes, Sarah probably is, uh, you know, don't you, in, I think, in legal and constitutional terms, have to look some at the intention of the writers of the law (laughs) and determine in their context what they meant by that? You know, who better to know? what someone intended in a law than the one who made the law. <clears throat> you know, God makes the law. He comes in the flesh as a son of man. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I know all about the Sabbath. <laughs> but I think there's something more than that in this. And that is, um, the Sabbath was a shadow. Now, Colossians two sixteen and 17 says that that the Sabbath among other things was a shadow of Christ this one day a week rest from the punishment of sin was foreshadowing Jesus come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you the Sabbath the real ultimate truth Sabbath the release and deliverance from sin Jesus is the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is. In himself, he fulfills the Sabbath by giving rest. It is very interesting. When Jesus said that in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The very next thing in Matthew is this incident about the disciples picking the grain on the Sabbath. And the next thing is... um, The man, the next story, the man with the withered hand that Jesus heals on the Sabbath. So Jesus says, I am the Sabbath. And then he chooses the Sabbath day to do certain things that show him as being the fulfillment. He is the ultimate true rest that the weekly Sabbath was just a foreshadowing of. So Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath in a very profound way. Now that may be more than what you wanted to know about that, but that's... I Think all part of what Jesus is saying. Do you have some comments and questions? Did that make any
2: sense? That's pretty cool.
0: cool. You repeat that. Uh, Hit (laughs) replay. All right, next section. Uh, I, I wish this had been in chapter 2 uh, because it seems to me that we're on the same theme, more criticisms of Jesus. And I love this one. This is really cool. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6.
1: He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the living hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out, and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him.
0: He's in the synagogue and there's a man there with a withered hand. Got a mental picture of that one? Yeah, I do. I picture Mike Stevens, who was a boy I was in second and third grade with, and uh, I'd never asked, you know, as a second or third grader what happened. One of his hands and arms was normal. The other one, he had a little, scrawny little arm and a withered-up little hand on the end of his little arm, and uh, so that's what I always have in my mental image as Mike Stevens. And uh, they're watching him. What's Jesus going to do now? What was the special thing that they were uh, that they were thinking about? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? Now, what do you think about? Jesus' healing techniques. When Jesus went to heal somebody, what would he commonly do? Say, be healed. (laughs) Often lay his hands on them. Sometimes he made little mud out of his saliva and some dirt and put it on some blind guy's eyes and told him to go wash his eyes off and he came back seeing and there was one time he stick, stuck his finger in some guy's ears, it was deaf, and you know he did various things kind of various techniques when he healed somebody so he has this man get up and come forward, we're going to have kind of a showdown right here, here's the man with the withered hand, here's Jesus and here's the uh, the the Audience, who are people of withered souls, it seems to me. And uh, Jesus, before he does anything, says what in verse 4? Is it lawful to do good or
2: to do harm, to save a life or to
0: kill? You tell me. Now, have you ever noticed how it's a lot easier to criticize than it is to come up with a positive recommendation? <laughs> He kind of turns the tables and he says, okay, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath day? What do they say? They don't. Could they say, well, yeah, it's lawful to do harm on the Sabbath day. No, they can't say that. What if they said, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath day? Well, when Jesus does, they can't criticize him. They said to do it. He, well, they just don't say anything. You know, they're ready to criticize, but, you know, they're not, they, they don't really have a position. They just want to criticize. And so he's pretty upset with them. He's grieved at their hard-heartedness. And he pulls a very brilliant move. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> when Jesus healed this man with the withered hand, what did he do? What technique did he use?
1: Out his
0: hand. Yes, he told. that's what he said. Stretch out your hand. What did he do? You won't read him. about him doing anything. All he said, he just said to the guy, stretch out your hand. Believe it or not, not even the Pharisees thought it was wrong to tell someone to stretch out their hand on the Sabbath day. <laughs> <laughs> Nor did they think it was wrong to stretch out your hand on the Sabbath day. <laughs> <laughs> what could they accuse <clears throat> Jesus of? Healing the man? Well, they don't really want to accuse him of that. They don't really want to admit that. He didn't do anything! What can they accuse him of? (laughs) He outsmarts them. How do you feel when you get outsmarted? Really annoyed. Yes. If you don't have any more argument what do you often resort to?
1: Hanging on the table.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Violence. And so, what do they go out to do?
1: Not bang on the table. Conspiracy with the Herodians. To do what? To destroy
0: him. Like, kill Fascinating. Isn't it a strange conscience? That thinks it's horrible to heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. But considers it perfectly okay to plot murder on the Sabbath. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It's just amazing. Isn't it amazing how how absolutely inconsistently ridiculous we can be. When we're blind and prejudiced and jealous and stubborn. Now I also like this because did you notice verse 4 again? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? When you first read that, you think of that as being sort of overkill. You know, to save a life or to kill? Who in the world, in their right mind, would think it'd be right to kill on the Sabbath? Well, now we know. <laughs> you know, Jesus, uh, when he said sort of, uh, he knew what was going to happen, you know, what he sort of uh, prepares for that. Um, but you definitely know. I mean, if you see two people arguing, and one of them starts losing their temper what do you immediately think? run away Do what? run away away. yeah that's probably a wise move but what do you think about the two in the argument? the one losing
2: their temper has no more
0: argument
2: no more
0: ground you don't even have to hear the argument the guy who's losing his temper is probably the one that's wrong if he was right he wouldn't have to lose his temper if he was winning the argument well he doesn't have to be upset he wouldn't be upset you think about it with yourself when you start getting mad in a disagreement. <laughs> what does that tell you? You know, the guy who resorts to violence is the guy who doesn't have anything left to argue. Who, uh... There's something else that's intriguing to me. Who are the two groups that went out to conspire against Jesus here? The Herodians and the Pharisees. Now, we know a lot more about the Pharisees than we do about the Herodians. We know a lot about the Pharisees. And politically, what were the Pharisees against? The Romans. Yes. The Herodians, we mostly know what they must have believed in by their name. You would have assumed the Herodians are pro-Herod. And Herod had been greatly benefited by his uh, buttering up the Romans and was very tightly allied with the Roman rule. So this is an anti-Rome group with a pro-Rome group who are conspiring together with each other against Jesus. Isn't that interesting? They hate Jesus so much they're willing to work together against him. They hate Jesus more than they hate Rome. In the case of the Pharisees. It reminds me of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth and and, and their princes take their stand together to throw off the rule of of God. You don't see the kings of the earth ever joining together about anything except in their common opposition to God. So Jesus manages to reconcile people. Either he reconciles people to God or he reconciles them to each other in their opposition to him. <laughs> That's what you've got here. Comments and questions on that story? I really like them. one. Yes, see. Well, i Rodians one. He's dead. Um, Jesus is not safe. You know, he's kind of a maverick. He's definitely taking the crowd away from these leaders, whichever ones they may be. And, you know, he's pure and God-fearing. He's not necessarily pro rome He's pro-God.
2: It could have been the Pharisees looking for some support more than finding someone who also opposed in the same way
0: that they did. I think the Pharisees are willing to line up with anybody they can to get some clout against Jesus.
1: He also subverted at least one tax
2: collector.
0: That's the truth. That would not make the uh, Romans happy. Debbie? No, I no.
2: think what part of Jesus did these groups not like?
1: I why think, was they are they
0: jealous or why? I think jealousy is a big part of it. He's got a lot of people following him. These prideful people wanted those folks to follow them. He's also, for the Pharisees, he's flying in the face of all of their cherished rules and traditions and and all of that. So from their perspective, he's corrupting the masses with what he's teaching. I think those are two factors
2: was it one of the guards that they sent to arrest him came back and they said now you're not going to become his disciple also are you? kind of insulting them
0: yes and asking the question nobody important has ever followed him Yes, (laughs) you know just this common people who don't know anything they're the followers there was an elitism in the Herodians, the Pharisees and so forth they didn't want to subject themselves to Jesus You know, pretty much people with political power hate those they can't control and they can't predict. People who aren't political, they don't understand them. Because all they understand is people who are, you know, unscrupulous in their desire to keep power.
1: At this point, had uh, the people tried to come and make Jesus king by force?
0: We don't know that for sure, but I think no. I think it's better to see that as relatively late in his ministry. A lot of that is a little conjectural as we try to put the accounts together and figure out the organization. But basically, we think that was kind of at a point where Jesus lost a lot of his popularity and probably would not have been drawing such big crowds after that. So we would think this would be for
1: Because I was thinking that would be a reason why the Herodians might not like him if the people were trying to make him king, and so now you have a rival king against their Rome-backed Herod.
0: No no doubt people were already thinking about that, though. They may have been talking about it. Yes, that's for sure. And you remember Herod the Great himself had tried to do Jesus in when he was a baby. Now, I don't know that anybody would have made that connection, but... Are there comments and questions on this story?
1: I think like the Pharisees, Pharisees they like think they can get, they can get away with anything. They can blame other people, but they can do something worse, and they just think they can do it.
0: You're right. When people have power, they often, you know, see themselves as uh, invincible. Other thoughts? 7 to 12.
1: Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Ibenia, and beyond the Jordan, in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowds, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was.
0: Isn't the disconnect between verse 6 and verses 7 and 8 interesting? Jesus, the, 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 the leaders are taking a firm stand against Jesus in verse 6. The people in verses 7 and 8 are flocking to him from everywhere. That that distinction between those who were pr- pr- proud and, and powerful, they didn't come to Jesus. The common people did. Now, this is where you really need a map. Um, I don't know if we've got a collective map here. Um, you might, I don't know how many of you have maps in the back of your Bible. I don't know if we can do this to where everybody can see these places or not. But it's kind of handy to notice where all Jesus' followers come from. And they say something about maps while I'm at it. Um, if you've got maps in the back of your Bible, uh, you've probably got more than one. Look at the heading of the maps and they will tell you the time period. So if you've got a map showing Galilee or sh- sh- showing, showing Israel or Palestine or something like that in the days of Jesus... That's what you'd like. Or Canaan in the days of Jesus. Something that shows in the days of Jesus. That would be helpful. Always when you're looking for a map, try to find one that relates to roughly the same time period. And uh have you can everybody look on a map? Let me see if you've got maps that are reasonable. Yeah, that'll work. That'll work. That'll work. Yeah, that'll work. Uh Uh, yeah, that'll work. The mystery of Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that's good. He yeah. Like <laughs> yeah, that'll work. Uh, this one. Yeah. you get yeah. your whiteboard, you can draw your own. Okay, well I'm going to basically draw my own just without a whiteboard. Alright, I'm going to see if I can verbally <laughs> get you guys to to see these places on a map. Well, this is going to be a challenge, to, but I've never tried this before. Do so. you want a whiteboard? I have one. right in
2: here. I don't
0: think I need it. Okay. I don't think I need it. Okay. I want you to think about your I want you to look at your maps. Now, on the left hand side of the map you're looking at is a sea, right? It's blue. The Sea of Galilee. The, the Mediterranean Sea, yeah. So if you see this the Mediterranean Sea, that's a landmark. That's on the left. Now I want you to look for much two much smaller bodies of water inland a little ways. There's a small Sea of Galilee. Then there's the Jordan River going down to a larger dead sea. Those are going to be landmarks for us, being able to pick out the seas. So you got the big Mediterranean Sea on the left. Then you ought to have the small Sea of Galilee, Jordan River going down to the little larger dead sea. Has everybody found those three seas? Everybody okay? Anybody not found that? Okay, that'll help us. All right, now we're going to look for the places where the people were following Jesus from. They were following him from Galilee. Now see that Sea of Galilee? Look right to the left of it. And that's the region of Galilee. Most of you will have something that will say Galilee. But it's like a province or a state. It's not a city. So everybody found Galilee? Cool. All right. You're good. And then uh, you come. Then, then it says Judea. Judea is right to the left of the Dead Sea. So if you look right to the left of that lower sea, you ought to see Judea on there, or Judah or something like that. Everybody found that? Alright, then from Jerusalem Now Jerusalem's a city, and here's how you find Jerusalem Go to the Dead Sea, go right to the northern edge of the Dead Sea, and then come to your left, just a little bit from from the top of the Dead Sea, and you ought to find a dot for Jerusalem Find that? It's a, little, it's a little harder to find cities. Is it in Judea? It's in Judea, yes. All right, and then it says from uh, Idumea. Now, some of you will and some of you won't have Idumea on your maps. Some of your maps are a little too small. that don't take into a big enough range. But go, go from the, the Dead Sea and go down, and, and you ought to find Idumea if, you, if your map goes down far enough, <laughs> It's a region. It's a region. Just like Galilee is a region. Judea is a region. Idumea is a region. So some of you can find that. Some of you may not be able to, but that's where it is. It's down below the Dead Sea. Some of you may have it below and a little bit to the left of the Dead Sea. And then you've got from beyond the Jordan. Now the Jordan, you may not see the Jordan on there, but the Jordan is the river that connects the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And so we're talking about the region to the right of the Jordan River. From that region. That, that They call that beyond the Jordan, because it's beyond the Jordan. It's on the right hand side of the Jordan. From the perspective <laughs> of the Jews who mostly live on the left hand side of Jordan, the right hand side is beyond the Jordan. And then you've got Tyre and Sidon. Now, I want you to go back to the sea on your left, the Mediterranean Sea, and go up from Galilee. And there sh- these are cities. There should be two dots up there Tyre is the, nor- the uppermost dot and Sidon just below it. Yeah. You
1: haven't got it? T- no. Is it Sidon
0: above? Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Anyhow, you'll find those two dots of Tyre and Sidon. And some of you may have maps that don't show that. But. Everybody found most of that? Now, what's your impression of that when you start looking at all the different regions where people had come to Jesus from? Everywhere. Yeah! really pretty popular and they're coming to him from all around here, aren't they? I love being able to see that in a map. It means a lot more to me than just reading it on here. Okay? Any questions or comments Uh, through verse 8?
2: And where is he right now?
0: He is probably right, right to the left of the Sea of Galilee. He often is, we don't know for sure right here, but he's often in uh, the area around uh, area around Capernaum. And Capernaum is right on the upper left-hand side of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is kind of his home base. So he's probably on the Sea of Galilee, probably near Capernaum. That's, Galilee was kind of, you know, the home region, and Capernaum kind of the city that he kind of based his operations from. All right. Very good. Um, so... There are so many people (laughs) that have crowded it around him. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like to just be thronged by constant people? Frustrating. Hectic. There probably are scales of miles on your maps, if you can find one.
2: But that area is roughly the size of Indiana or something, I mean...
0: Yeah, th- it depends on how big an area you're looking at. But some of your maps may have shown an area about the size of Indiana. So from where to where?
1: I think from side to Beersheba. Uh, I think it'd be a little more than, that. more
0: than that. Yeah, I think a little more than that.
1: So but not a lot more than the that. The length of Indiana
0: is... Yeah, well, Indiana would be like 200 meters.
1: From Nazareth to Jerusalem is 70.
0: Yeah, something like that.
1: So, I think yeah. from the map class so that we had, that there yeah. are like three, yeah. okay. three Judeas will fit in Indiana.
0: Okay. You turn them.
1: Okay. that was
0: a It's not a huge region. You're not talking about something the size of the United States. You know, nothing like that. And it kind of depends on how broad you draw the region. You know, Tyre and Sight is almost out of the region, but there are people coming down there from there and so forth. Um, and remember, they walk, or they ride animals. I mean, for us, it's so different because we get places so much faster that it kind of has changed our whole concept of distance. But remember, if you were always walking or riding a, you know, donkey or something, then, you know, a few miles is, you know, something.
2: Do we, we, um, do we have any knowledge of when this might be? Like, how long it's been since Jesus has been,
0: has been preaching and healing? I don't know how long it's been. Um... Somebody in a jeep, you're getting volleyball people here. No, that might be true. Oh, okay. That's yeah, cool. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lock the door. <laughs> don't I want you the have, boss to see
1: you. He's <laughs> on Easter 10 times.
0: <laughs> I mean,
1: doctor's notice, right?
0: So, so
2: I, I don't know, it's
0: probably fairly early on, but I don't know exactly how long.
2: Well, that's amazing to see how much, obviously how his name had already spread to different countries, because we're in word Yeah. Which yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, in, in a matter of a few months, maybe a year, year and a half, yes. That is, very quickly, Jesus' popularity, you know, just rose dramatically. And, and you know, a lot of times, when, when you just picture Jesus a lot of times our picture is you see Jesus on a, on a hillside surrounded by you know lambs and a few little children and you know, a flowing, flowing brook there and It seems really peaceful and calm and all that don't see Jesus that way in much of this time period Jesus, it'd be better to see Jesus like, you know, imagine some popular or, or important world leader that's surrounded by the crowd, jostled by reporters, microphones in his face, you know that kind of stuff, you know, or maybe a popular, um, you know, rock star or you know, entertainment, you know, figure or whatever. Where anytime he's out, just throngs mm, of people come to it. You want to? You
1: can't name one.
0: <laughs> I didn't say I could uh, yeah I don't know
1: is he talking about the culture or anything like that yeah <laughs> just keep coming well
0: you, you know what I did about two years ago in a sermon I, was, I completely short circuited and I was trying to come up with the name of a very famous basketball player and I called him Michael Jackson. <laughs> so, that wasn't the wise move. <laughs> I noticed with everybody's faces I said something wrong. <laughs> so, you have to get your Jordans and Jacksons together when you're going to preach. Um, so, so there's so many people. In verse 9, what does Jesus end up doing? Sailing out the small
1: boat.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, he's got so many people that I know just press him on into the sea so he has him get a boat ready to where he can you know maybe get in a boat and you know even I don't know if you're trying to speak to a big group if, if the group's right there in your face it's going to cover up your the sound of your, your uh, you know words and people can't hear you as well as if you get a little space between you and you can actually speak to them so I mean you know if you were claustrophobic you'd have a real problem being in uh, Jesus' shoes here because there's this kind of a crowd now what's Jesus doing for the crowd And perhaps this is part of the reason why they're coming. Healing them. And they're all trying to get into him so they can touch him and ask for healing and all that. So you can imagine them just pressing in. And uh, what else is he doing? Besides healing sick folks. Yeah, and the demons knew who he was. Isn't that impressive? But the demons did. They knew he was the Son of God and they'd say so. And Jesus would order them to be quiet. He did not want demons to advertise him. Comments and questions?
2: I want to ask this question before, but in verse 20, he says he certainly warned them that they should not make him know
0: Yeah, don't tell who he was. Okay.
2: So, like, could they just go around and start talking in people's ears and telling them who Jesus was, or is it just talking about. I don't understand that.
0: Well, I mean, they were they were hollering out there when they saw Jesus, they'd fall down before him, saying, "You're the Son of God," and he's saying, "Don't tell people who I am." Oh, okay. Yeah, don't don't say that. He
1: was like on that small boat with like. I
2: could like picture like people swimming
0: out there and trying to still get. I could too. Yes, I really could. I hadn't thought about it, but I I wouldn't be at all surprised. Yeah. Beaver water. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was it was it was really um, very I don't know what the word is, but but very hectic, very. uh, Everybody was always trying to get something from him. They always needed him. You know, they were always after him i mean he tried to go somewhere to get away and they'd follow him you know so i could see them doing that for sure
2: but did that make jesus mad
0: never did you never see him getting frustrated with it it's amazing you know we would have said would you give me some peace but jesus always seems very compassionate toward them it's very it's really amazing he probably felt glad for him and also uh, he
1: probably got a little like frustrated that all of them coming because he'd feel
0: happy because they're all trying to learn about him. And hear yeah, he, in, in in Mark 6, there was a time he, he went across the, the Sea of Galilee to the other side to get some time, you know, to just rest with his disciples. By the time he got there, they'd gone around on the shore. They saw where he was, he was headed. There was a whole big crowd of them there. And it says that he had compassion on them because he saw they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he started teaching them. And uh, that was pretty impressive. And we know there were a ton of people that time because that's the time, after a while, he multiplied the loaves and fishes and fed over 5,000 people. So, I mean, we're not talking about, you know, hundreds of people. In some cases, we're talking about thousands of people. Interesting,
2: he's able to talk to that many people at one time. I was often wondered about that. You know, was, was good, he,
0: good PA system. Was he horse <laughs> by the
2: horse? You don't picture Jesus ever yelling, you know. You always see him, uh, uh, but he had to talk
0: loud or some way that that could be done. They may have had megaphones back then, I don't know. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, he had to be, he had to talk loud. <clears> he <throat> Also, it says
2: that he had healed many. We don't have the accounts of all of those. No. We have certain ones, and we oftentimes look at that, oh, he healed this guy and he healed this guy and this guy. But it says the reason there were so many there is, verse 10, is because he had already healed yes. many people. Yes.
0: This was the result of that. Exactly. And this is kind of one of these um, paragraphs in Mark where he sort of kind of uses this to sort of summarize the kinds of things that were going on. This is not so much just one specific event as it is to kind of give you a flavor of how things are. We've really moved kind of to a different section now in Mark. You know, he's dealt with the criticism and it's ironic three of the criticisms dealt with his eating habits you know he ate with the wrong people he ate at the wrong time and he ate in the wrong way and two of them dealt with his forgiving sins and his healing on the sabbath but now we've moved on to seeing kind of jesus relationships with various groups of people and um, we'll see a lot of different people's reactions to jesus over these next several sections in this case you've got just the multitude of common people who thronged Jesus because they want to hear him, they want to be healed, or whatever. Comments and questions?
1: Did he speak in different tongues? He
0: He didn't need to, probably, because these people probably would have all spoken Aramaic. These are mostly Jews that have come from these areas. Or, pretty much everybody in the Roman Empire spoke Greek. So we assume he probably spoke Aramaic with these people since that's the language the Jews spoke but he could have also communicated in Greek if he needed to probably. Good question. Other thoughts? All right, how about 13 to 19?
2: And he went up to the mountain and some of those whom he himself wanted and they came to him and he appointed 12 they might be with him and he might send them out to preach have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Blan- yeah, and which means sons of thunder, thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him.
0: Alright, so this is another group. He's gone up on the mountain calling people to him and He ends up choosing how many? Twelve. Twelve. What's uh, what's he choosing them for? Jury. Yeah. Yes. So that they can be with him, and so that he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, the being with him would probably be a matter of training, training, apprenticeship, you know, and then he's going to send them out. As his representatives, uh, who are going to be able to spread his message? Uh, do you know the word that we use for these twelve that means one sent out? Apostle. That's what the meaning of the word apostles. We call them apostles. They were sent out by Jesus. Um, so, so Jesus is going to actually use these men to kind of be the. Um, I don't know the the ambassadors for him, the official representatives, they're going to be the ones kind of in charge of the whole enterprise when it's all said and done. Jesus knows he's not going to be around for that much longer and so he's grooming these men to sort of take over. Now if you were trying to um, start a worldwide mission that you wanted the gospel preached everywhere and you wanted 12 men to kind of be the, the key men in this operation. What kind of men would you want to choose? 12.
1: 12. Men of pro- proven ability.
0: Proven ability. The best. The
1: best. Travel agent. Good
0: one. You'd want people who had um, perhaps education. Um, yeah, some resources. Uh, certainly abilities, and uh, perhaps some some you know uh, status and, and power in society. And, uh, you you know, you, I mean, who, who do, uh, oh, say, uh, I don't know, I mean, there's a lot of things to do, but, but say, uh, like a, a, a school, a college, or whatever, you know, who do they choose for their board of directors?
1: Very wealthy, important, powerful people.
0: Yeah. You know, they probably don't have, you know, Ordinary Joe on their board of directors. I mean, you don't do that. You know, you get the men who you really feel like have the resources and abilities to, you know, make a difference. So, Jesus does lots of things in unconventional ways. Look at the 12 guys Jesus chooses. Now, a few of these guys we know very little about. But there are some guys we do know some things about. We know about the first four of these guys, Simon, James, John, and Andrew. We know what their background was. They were... Would you? She was a fisherman. And uh, we know about um, the one of the guys in verse 18 named Matthew. His other name was Levi. Remember what Levi was, right? Tax, collect, tax collector. <laughs> and uh, the last guy in verse 18, uh, Simon the Zealot. Do you know what the Zealots were?
1: It was a group of uh, it was un- like almost like another sect of the Jews and they were very zealous for Jewish independence and very anti-Rome.
0: Yeah, they were basically terrorists that were trying to throw off Roman rule. <laughs> um, well, the last one, Judas Iscariot, you know about him, right? His reputation is of...
1: He betrayed Jesus. A liar
0: what about some of these other guys then um, what about uh, Thomas in verse 18 what do you know about Thomas what was his fame yeah, yeah he, he, he was very skeptical um, Philip you actually do find out some things about Philip in, in the gospel of John and you can check this out for yourself but, but if you look at it every time we read about Philip in the gospel of John he seems just a step slow <laughs> doesn't ever seem to quite get it quite as quick as everybody else does um I don't know these the guys you want that's pretty amazing isn't it about the only guys that may have had better credentials are the ones we know nothing about (laughs) like you know Bartholomew or James the son of Alphaeus or Thaddeus or you know somebody like that we really don't know enough about them to have any idea where they came from but those that we do know anything about would probably not have been any of them the guys we would have chosen so why does Jesus choose these guys
1: would demonstrate God's power better
0: now that's a good point does Jesus does God usually choose the very most capable people to do his jobs he wanted to kill a great big Philistine giant what great big Israelite warrior did he choose (laughs) little shepherd David (laughs) would that have been the guy you'd have chosen yeah he 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 equips him well sends him (laughs) out with five rocks little slingshot or whatever um you know it does show god's power more when it's obvious when these um unlearned men preach the gospel they weren't the philosophers that invented it (laughs) you know when they managed to make a success it's pretty obvious it was god's success and not theirs and I'll tell you, these, except for Judas, these 12 have another quality that I think is impressive. They're loyal. They may not be much, but they stick with him. You know, he can do something with folks who'll stick with him, even if they don't have a whole lot of ability and aren't overly sharp and don't have the education and the resources like other people would. You know, what are we looking for when we try to go out and teach people? We want to teach only the sharpest people that are really, you know... I don't know, capable and talented, and you know, all that. I mean, what do we look for? I, I, I think this ought to be said. Many more. What do churches look for when they're trying to find elders to lead the group? You know, that's what we all look for. Sometimes what people look for is well, they're a good businessman. You know, they've got a lot of influence. You know, they've been able to get things done in, You in know, their section of life. They'll probably make a good elder. You know the qualifications God gives for elders. Oh, I don't seem to remember much of anything about their educational uh, achievements or their business acumen or anything like that. You know, God's more concerned about spiritual qualities. He doesn't really care about that other stuff. That's what we care about, but clearly Jesus didn't. Uh, it's really encouraging to me the kind of men that Jesus picked right here. I mean, they had to be humble. Yeah, that's right. I mean, for the the job they were going to do, they had to be humble and they couldn't be
2: they couldn't let pride get in their way of doing what Jesus was going to ask
0: them to do so he asked those that weren't the most powerful. you're right that's a good point if if, if you pick a, a capable successful person their success in the gospel might go to their head you pick men like this clearly they knew they weren't doing it on their own that's encouraging for people like us who really haven't done much that impresses Anyone in worldly terms, it really doesn't matter. In so fact, when you, when success you looked Christ at Christ them, was they the <coughs> ordinary
2: looking person that ever dressed up, put a suit on, a tie, and all this, to like a banker would do to impress you?
0: We were not told what they wore, but there's sure no indication that they wore impressive things, um, as opposed to the Pharisees. Yes, yes. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for wearing long robes and and trying to impress people with what they wore. So you would assume what Jesus and the disciples wore were ordinary things that didn't stand out.
2: See, God knows everything about us. Yes, he does. But now, does Jesus know everything
1: about us? And that's (laughs) why he picked those people, because he knew about them?
0: I think probably so. He also, from one of the other other Gospels in Luke, he'd spent all night praying to God before he picked him. So certainly the Lord God would have guided him in that. But we know at times, at least, Jesus knew things about people. We'll see a lot of examples of that. So yeah, I think Jesus knew what he was doing. I think he picked exactly who he intended to pick, just not who we might have chosen to pick. And it just shows you how different the Lord's criteria are than what ours are.
1: Do you consider um, Bartholomew in this account to be the Tha- Nathaniel in the other account? I think so. I know um, when he was choosing Nathaniel, as he approached, he said, Here comes an honest man. Yes. So he did know Nathaniel's character even before he knew who Nathaniel, before Nathaniel and Jesus had ever met.
0: Good point. That's John 1. That's a good point. Yes. Yeah, Nathaniel is only mentioned in John, Bartholomew is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Bar, at the beginning of, a name means son of. So, Bartholomew, that's not really his name, that's his last name, he's the son of Tholomew. And um, Nathaniel in um, John was brought by Philip. Philip and Bartholomew are always together in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Acts, when they're brought together. And Nathaniel's found in a group of apostles in John 21. So that seems to indicate he probably was an apostle. And so I think the connection is very, very likely that Nathanael was Bartholomew. Anything else anybody wants to say through verse 19? I think God chose all these
1: people to tell everybody that anybody can learn and teach
2: the Bible.
0: You're exactly right. As long as we're humble and loyal. Other thoughts? All right, why don't we stop here then? And uh, we'll have to stop for a while now. Uh, I think I should be here four weeks from today, whatever that makes that. May 12th. May 12th. And I plan to go to Brazil next Monday.
1: Come back two Monday.